Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Alex Radcliffe, the content creator behind the popular YouTube channel, Board Game Co., where he talks about anything from Kickstarters to topical conversations to board game reviews and more. Alex, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. It is awesome having you. After we had the folks from uh, Quackalope on here, uh, definitely <laughs> you were the next logical step. So it is uh, it is awesome having you here. You've got such a robust uh, influence in the industry. You've got kind of got your fingers and talons out into different uh, aspects. And I kind of want to dive into those on this uh, on this podcast. Let's start off with you just got into this industry in it was it 2012. Yeah, 2012. I mean, 2012 was, it's a, I guess, a bit of a hybrid. I got into gaming in 2012. Yeah. And sometime, I don't know the exact point in time, but somewhere between 2012 and 2014 was when I slowly transitioned from pure gamer to slowly making a business out of it. And then from there, you kind of started uh, working towards this relationship. I guess you got a business partner named Dan. Yeah. And uh, 2014, you decided we're going to get into warehousing and buying and selling games. So how did that whole thing kind of come about? So this goes back to that magical two-year timeframe situation where when I got into the hobby, I did what many people do. And I spent more money than I probably should have on board games and more uh, getting more games than I was actually playing. And so what effectively happened is I got to a point where I had like 400 games. And my first year in the hobby, I had 400 games in my collection. I was constantly buying things on sale, on deals, whenever I could. I was like, ooh, that's a game. And it's on sale now, so I'll get it now. I'll, I'll get to it later. Yeah. And I kind of woke up one day and realized that I had like 400 games of which I had only played maybe 70 of them. It was it was not a healthy situation. I, I've always had an addictive personality and it's why I don't gamble anymore anything like that but this is not that cheaper and effectively so what i did was uh board game geek has this trading platform on it this way where you can trade games and i kind of woke up one day i was like you know what i'm just going to start selling games and try to get my money back as much as possible and slow down and ease down and i ended up actually making money on a lot of the games i sold because used games hold their sale value fairly decently yeah. and i had always bought things on sale that's why i got to 400 i always bought things on deals on sale and all that and so from there, I kind of migrated to trading as well, offering up all these games that, I, that didn't sell. I offered them up for trade to try to get games I wanted instead and cycle it around. And I very quickly realized that on Board Game Geek, people who want a lot of games and have a lot of games, you don't have to search as hard to trade. In the past, when I wanted to trade, I'd have to like message dozens of people and always be reaching out. But if I put up half my collection for trade and I wanted another 500 games, people came to me. And I realized there was a big market for having overlap in trading because you can trade four or five games at once and save a lot of money in shipping. And that's where I kind of realized that, oh, I have this cool way of getting free games, so to speak. I'll I'll do trades, but I'll specifically do you know these unbalanced trades where the benefit I get from the trade pays for the cost of shipping. And mm. that was meant to just be like a clever way of getting free games, of finding out people who are willing to trade. But it really took off. It was it was not what I expected it to be. And so this little side hustle of selling games I had bought and trading games, whatever, very much became a real business out of my basement where my 400 games grew to 1500 games by the end of 2014 in a two-year period. And I was like, oh, I wasn't making money, but I was just constantly cycling and then paying for the shipping costs, paying for all the expenditures, packing boxes in my free time, all that stuff. And in 2014 was when 
I kind of realized this thing had, had to either move to a warehouse because we had no basement anymore or had to stop. And so that's when we made a decision to try to start the business in North Carolina. And from there led to the next few years of not making any money because the downside of having a real business with real employees and accountants and taxes and all those things means that a small amount of money I was making went out the window very quickly. Uh, but we, we grew a business out of it, which was a fun little experiment. So you were working a day. So you have actually a day job besides yeah. that, right? That you're doing. And what, what's your day job? So at the time when I first started the business, I was a purchaser for a food distribution company. Hmm. And right around 2014, which is about the time when we made the shift, uh, I lost my job. And I shortly after making the shift to becoming a business in the board games, in the board game sphere, I took a new job working for an e-commerce agency where we build websites. And I, what's it called? I've been doing that for the past six years now. I actually made a, a gaffe recently on when I was covering Marvel United, I, I referred to as like, oh, we have this person, this person, and we have Magento. And I really realize as I was talking and I kept on ta- kept on going and the next day I see the comments oh Magento oh is like you know we're we gonna get like you know pink Magento's younger sister like I got tons of comments having a blast with it and I was like oh oh that makes sense and and the reason for that is because the e-commerce software we work with is called something called Magento that's the name right. of the platform <laughs> so I say Magento like 15 times a day for the past six years and I say Magneto like once a year well, so just create I create a new just, character and you'll be fine now yeah you exactly new, you a new hero we'll call a new villain called Magento but yeah, so that's my that's my day job, working with a software called Magento and building websites for people. That's crazy. So what when you started this warehouse and uh, now you obviously had a day job, so you couldn't work the actual warehouse. Were you working it in the evenings at all or was it kind of set up and kind of handed over to employees and kind of so, had to work it from arm's length? Yeah, so when I, was, when I was running out of my basement, I'd pack boxes in the morning and the evening, go to work and come home and deal yeah. with all that. Uh, whenever I'd run an auction, it was crazy. I'd be like working the whole weekend, just packing boxes. When we moved to a warehouse, the upside is, like I said, we I don't have to do these things anymore. And in fact, it's run in a different state. I'm in Ohio and the warehouse is in North Carolina. But we have employees doing everything. But then again, those employees need to be paid. So at this point, everything's being handled by them on a, on a, in terms of the packing, the operations, it's all them. In terms of customer communication and things like that, it's, it's me. And then we have one employee, actually, we have two employees now who handle a lot of the communication as well. So it's three people handling the communication and the back end maintenance and all that stuff. And then uh, four people, four, four and a half people sort of in the warehouse handling the packing, the boxes and all that. And why the decision to have, your physical location so far away from where the warehouse is located? This That's a good question. Uh, because Dan, the partner you mentioned, he his side thing is he's an entrepreneur. He's been an entrepreneur his whole life. And his current business that he, the primary focus of his time and attention is a business called File Vault out of North Carolina, where he has mm-hmm. a warehouse and deals with storage uh, needs with people. So he, has, he already had a warehouse with barcoding needs and systems and people. We have our own people in the warehouse just because of how much time we use. But effectively, it's his operation. He had moved to Cleveland, which is how I met him. Mm-hmm. But he still had the business in North Carolina. So we've talked to, we've talked multiple times over the past few years about the potential to move it all to Cleveland so it's closer so we can be involved. But honestly, the dream has always been to not need to be involved on in a day-to-day basis, which for the warehouse side has worked, but for the operations, for the the communication and all the back end stuff, I'm still way more involved than I want to be. But yeah, in North Carolina, because that's where that's where he had his business. It's got to be tough, I guess, when you have something like board games when they're being resold, right? The the quality of the game, like how well it's been taken care of and, you know, the tender loving care, they sleeve the cards and so forth. And like, what is your process for being able to judge? It might be different now than it was maybe back sure. then, obviously, because your, your volume is so much higher. 
Um, but to be able to grade something and say, okay, this is worth X uh, based on what I'm seeing here, but you're not physically there. So is it more about training staff now, or is it some kind of virtual way online you're able to, to track these things or how's that work? So it's all the training staff. There's no way, I mean, the amount of games we receive, there's no way I could look at them yeah. individually, but we, we do have a grading system. We go through the games. They, they have a, a tier of the types of things to look for of scuff marks, wear and tear and cards. At the end of the day, it's one of those things that it's, it's both the pro and a con because we deal with hundreds of games. I mean, I don't, I don't even know how many games a week, but like that thousands and thousands of games a month and most mm -hmm. games have no issues but the reality is at the same time that when you're dealing with that kind of volume i still will get at least one or two issues a day just because of that much volume it's used games and what we do is yeah. not perfect uh like i we do publicly post this but we don't inventory the games there'd be no profit margin at all if you had to like manually count every piece in caverna every time you got it so we have a general grading system they open the box they look at things they check for obvious issues they check for wear and tear they go through you know with the box ripped damaged all those kinds of things are a checklist they go through but that ultimately results in about like a minute or two per game instead of you know two hours per game yeah but we deal with any issues we, we we it often means sometimes eating things out of pocket of oh you know your game that you spot has an issue so we'll send you another piece we'll refund you a portion of your money but it is definitely one of those things where the volume of the amount of times we're dealing with these games despite most of them being fine still mm -hmm. results in issues here and there do you have a way to then trace that back to the person that sold to the game and say hey like you gave me a game that was missing and like two meeples or anything like that or so because we have every single game uniquely barcoded we absolutely have that mm -hmm. at the same time we try to be mindful of we want it to be a positive experience all around and even though somebody may have sent us a game missing pieces we try to avoid harassing them after but <laughs> hey that game you sent me is missing two pieces we'd rather eat it as a business to try to to try to make it a positive experience the flip side is we do record how often a particular individual has issues and if they seem to be having more issues than they should that's when we'll reach out and say hey this is like the third time we've gotten a game from you that's been missing pieces yeah. like we gotta figure out a way for this to not happen because it results again that singular missing meeple it might not be a big deal but that means somebody because we don't inventory someone else might get a game that doesn't have a meeple and sure yeah. we'll refund you we'll work with you we'll do whatever but it's still a frustrating experience which we're trying to avoid yeah, I guess in that case, you're kind of grading your 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 sellers, right? People are selling to yes. you. You're actually creating a grade to say, you know, here's the quality of this person that we're buying from. Yeah. Is it, and, and, and not to stay too much but on, on this part of the business, but I just, I find it so fascinating. Um, is it, is the bulk of your, your purchases from like a, like, as, like the same people over and over again? Like, do you, do you have like people that have gone to the business of selling to you or is it kind of all over the map? So it's going to be all over the map to an extent, but we also have a huge amount of repeat business. Uh, one of the things that's, again, goes this goes back to the nature of having games that will have issues on a regular basis. Uh, again, regular being a term that's relative to the amount of volume, yeah. but it means that people who are looking for streamlined, perfect experiences, and if they have a problem with us, they won't come back. And that's understandable. Like They're like, oh, well, the saving of 20 bucks wasn't worth the hassle of an issue here or there. Completely yeah. reasonable. But there are a lot of people out there who do a lot of volume in games and they play a lot of games and they yeah. realize that that's that 15, 20 percent savings of what you have to otherwise buy a game for can really add up over time. So we have a huge amount of just loyal customers who will have issues, they'll report the issues, will deal with issues or whatever it is, or and they won't have issues every shipment, but they'll have issues here and there. But it's we get a huge amount of repeat business because of the, the unique nature of what we're doing. But at the same time, we also have spread. We have like, I mean, something that's always very cool is 
in terms of the amount of games traded on Board Game Geek, Board Game Co. has roughly 50% of the games that trade on Board Game Geek go through us. Not 50% of the trades, wow. but the amount of games traded because our, our trades are larger than the average trade. Yeah. So we have a fairly large reach just because no one else is really doing exactly what we're doing. Yeah, taking on somebody's collection. Somebody wants to get rid of their entire collection. You guys are there to kind of scoop it up. Yep. Do you see the same games kind of cycle back through? So do you see people like buy like a collection of used games, say four or five new games, and then sell them back to you again after they've kind of got tired of them? Or Oh, absolutely. So we'll regularly, we ask people not to do this because it causes issues, but we'll regularly get games back from people with the original barcodes that we put on. Now the barcodes are stickers that they peel cleanly off, like no issues sure. whatsoever. They can be in the warehouse for years. We spent a lot of time testing them to make sure there's no residue, but effectively there's little stickers that come on the games and then we'll get games back from people with stickers on them. And sometimes with the one that I find particularly amusing is we'll sometimes get games back from people with stickers on them that we didn't trade to that person. They're cycling around the ecosystem no oh, one bothered cool. moving a sticker and we'll we'll get it back wow that's almost like that kind of um like the the bottle floating in the water eventually kind of comes back to the person that tosses it into the ocean yeah that's crazy and what, what percentage of new games you, so you guys sell new games as well right yes yeah and how do you decide like what new games to get into where your business model is more you know buying and trading obviously you want to have some of the newer titles as part of your inventory as well from a customer service standpoint what percentage of your business is, is a newer titles and how do you decide which newer titles you bring in? So right now our business is maybe 10 to 15% new games, games bought from distributors to like sell the, whatever the latest hotness is. Yeah. Uh, as far as the decision space right now, the main factors that have limited that 10 to 15% and the decisions around them is going to be employee time, which is we're constantly behind on orders because it's, it's hard to find good work and then orders come in and we're always yeah. like a little bit behind. So buying new games is like, okay, great. We're adding, we're spending money adding to the workforce and we can't even deal with them until we get rid of these other ones. And then also just budgeting, meaning money, new games cost money and they something we have to factor in as well. Uh, so we're something we are looking to grow. We actually just hired someone again today and we're hoping that once we get caught up, we can start buying a lot more. But the decision tree around it right now is just placing, you know, occasional orders, you know, a few times a month from distributors for whatever the quote unquote hottest games are. And that's just a metric we have that uh, based on Board Game Geek's own stats of, you know, people buying, trading, all that stuff. Mm. We just pick like, oh, you know, the things that are going to perform the best right now are going to be, I don't know, Red Rising or who knows what, whatever game it is. I guess the challenge or the risk is, is tying up capital, right? Yeah. Because if you've got inventory sitting on a shelf, that's money that's not uh, not working for you. Yeah, absolutely. In 2018, so I think it was in April, you wrote a blog um, where you said it was kind of a decision point for you coming into that that year to say, you know, we're not sure if this is, uh, we're kind of going to put our best foot forward. We've been doing this for a few years now, but we got to make a profit for this to continue on. And it almost seemed like a bit of a gut check moment for you. And, you know, here we are a few years later. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, that, that point in time and, and kind of what the thought process was and kind of where you decided to go from there ultimately? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I forgot I wrote that post. I think it might, <laughs> is that the first blog post on the new site? It might be. I don't know. I don't know. You got a lot of blog posts on there, but I came across that one. I'm like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. I got to ask. So 
effectively, <laughs> once we moved to the warehouse uh, in 2014, yeah. I over the next four years, 2014 to 2018, uh, we made zero dollars. Not yeah. like an exaggeration. We made zero dollars. We didn't have to take out any debt. So compared to many businesses, we're already better off. Uh, and we got to play our employees and people walked home with a paycheck. But I worked for three hours a day for four years, roughly three hours a day for four years without taking a single cent out of this business. Uh, when mm. people always have those like occasional internet posts of like, oh, your prices are this or your this is that or this. Like I, I worked for free for four years. I'm not worried about margins here. Like there's nothing, there was no room to spare. Yeah. But at that point, my partner and I sat there and said, hey, and, and the business was always growing. Our, vol- our, our customers were always growing. And, and don't get me wrong, I was getting free games. That was nice. But mm. $0 was what I took out of the business for four years. And my partner and I said, hey, it looks like it's trending upwards, but it's been looking like it's trending upwards for four years. It's time to either make it work or walk away. There's a certain point where we have to stop saying it looks looks like it's getting better. And so we made some decisions. And those decisions were that we at the end of 2018, if I can't remember if it was at the end of 2018 or 2019, but at the end of the year, whatever it was, if we hadn't started making money, started, hadn't started taking something out of the business, we were calling it a day. And as a result of that decision, we also made the decision to execute on some things we had pushed off for years because time and tension. We both have day jobs. We both have other responsibilities. Yeah. We both like playing games. And so one of the decisions, I think the key one from all the other ones we did, actually, I would say this too. Uh, one was that we started a new website. We were previously on WordPress. Mm-hmm. We moved to Shopify. It was a complete, there's a lot of work, a lot of energy and time yeah. to migrate a site over and do it with, on a business that was making no money. But that was one thing. And then the second thing was uh, getting involved in actual marketing, spending money on Facebook ads, Google ads, actually getting involved in some form of marketing as opposed to just the general word of mouth we'd always had for years. And again, both those things are time, both those things are attention. The marketing in particular is money. It's a, when you're a business making $0 a month and just coasting, it's a big, uh, you know, moment of truth to spend, you know, hundreds of dollars a month on marketing that you don't have. And we did those things and it, very much helped the business get to another plateau, so to speak. Uh, you know, we're still not millionaires and all, but you know, we did go from making zero dollars a month to now I'm at the point where I can take a thousand dollars a month out of the business, which is decent. You know, it's a decent extra amount of income. It's still not worth the time I'm putting into it, but at yeah. least there's a return. At least there's like a okay, great. I'm actually getting paid for my time. I'm also I'm getting board games and I'm getting paid. So it's a little bit more of and don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining here. I have a warehouse with ten thousand games that we own. So if I ever do have to close up shop, I'm good for games the rest of my life yeah but, and you've got some capital you can liquidate there too if you yeah, ever wanted to get out exactly well, right? so in terms of all those i'm just not, I'm not trying to complain not trying to do that yeah. we definitely have a decent egg there so to speak but it was definitely that was the make it or break year that we said we have to we have to be walking away with a paycheck because it's been four years now and thankfully we we did i think it's a good business lesson right because i you know, a lot of people assume you're going to get into the board game industry and, you know, there's, they see all these Kickstarters that are hitting in the millions of dollars and they're like, wow, you know, this is, you know, man, if I can get in this industry, I'll, I'll have it made. And I think what kind of goes unseen is the sheer amount of work that is dumped in from everyone, content creators, you know, and we'll get into your content creator and mm-hmm. creation in a second, but even like buying and selling games and you know, having, you know, like as retailers and so forth. This is an immense amount of work for very, very small returns. And most of the people are doing are doing because they love the industry, yep. not because they're getting rich off of it. Right. And I think this is a, I'm glad you're allowing us to do a deep dive on this because I think it gives some good visibility into just how hard of a, of a slug it is. Right. It's 100%. not, it's not easy. 
Which of those two things was a bigger impact for you? Would you say the Shopify or doing the marketing? Oh, so I'm going to say Shopify. And the reason I say that is one of the reasons we held off on marketing for so long is because it wasn't that we weren't willing to take a risk on spending the capital. You know, set aside $1,000, figure out the risk, see if it works. But the reason we never did that is because one of the problems with our old site was we had page load times of like seven, eight seconds for like to get to a page. Ugh. And by the time you started a process, if you know, if you knew exactly the game you wanted start to finish, it would take you like seven minutes to go to get to the whole thing. Yeah. It was a slow site. And we were like, we can't spend money to send people to our site when it's a bad experience. So first we made it a good experience and then we sent people to the site. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. I know like on my end with, uh, with our company this is one thing we're considering doing as well, right? Do we, do we move over to Shopify or do we continue to use kind of some of the other avenues for selling and uh, just continue on with, with WordPress for kind of yeah. like the, about the company and, and game descriptions and so forth. So yeah, we had WooCommerce. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to kind of hear, uh, hear some success there. Yeah. And then I, I, I'm not sure if it's in one of your blogs, I read this or if it's in one of your videos about solo playing you play a lot of solo games i think right these days i play a lot more i used to def i definitely didn't used to it was a slow journey and now i do it like i mean now i'll do it anytime assuming i don't have friends over if if i have time and i want to play a game i have no problem playing solo and has uh covid pushed a lot of that along would you say (laughs) Uh, i would say content creation has actually done more so Oh, wow. So yeah, because for myself, I tried getting to solo when I first started in the hobby and tried yeah. a few things. It's like, it's not for me. Like, I don't mind it, but I'd rather play a video game. If I'm going to, for me, board games has always been a bit the hybrid of the strategy, the tacticalness, the fun of the board games combined with the social element. And it still is the best solo experience to me does not compare to spending time with my friends or family or whatnot. But over the years, I, fe- I think Spirit Island was the game that that pushed me over the edge. I played mm-hmm. Spirit Island with my wife. I really enjoyed it. And one day I was like, I'm going to try the solo. And I pulled it out and I had a blast with it. And then from there, other games slowly followed. And slowly is going to be the key word. Uh, for myself, yeah. when I say content creation did very much push me over the edge is now I'll get these like dungeon crawlers, something that I want to do a review for. And I get more games in at once, but I'm going through either fields and I'm going through wild ascent. I'm going through these longer games. I have a choice. I can get through it very slowly by roping in one of my friends or my wife and going through it over the course of a few months. But specifically when I'm trying to get a review in, I want to get more plays in faster. So I certainly get more plays in solo because I'm trying to, you know, get a review out. So I'll like, I'll play it with my wife. I'll get a few games in two players. So we know it's like, and then I'll get four or five plays in more solo so I can flesh out any weak spots in the review. So let's talk a little bit about content creation. So you started in, I think, uh, 2014, you were doing a blog, right? So yes. I think the name of it was Reviews Impressions you were doing for a number of Some, years. Sounds right. Yeah. And I think that's something that was probably um, almost like a companion to your business, right? Yeah. Um, so in 2019, I think it was December. So end of 2019 is when you decided to get into uh, creating a Board Game Co. YouTube channel. Um, what, what led you to that decision? What led you to move towards creating a YouTube channel? So the original plan was I yeah. wanted to do another thing of Avenue for my website. The original plan was, Hey, I watched from promote my website. Let me get on Facebook, on Instagram on YouTube. And I actually had started doing Instagram for like five, six months before and was doing it occasionally. It wasn't really growing much, but I was trying things. And yeah. I started to try, try YouTube as well. And the original motivation, not the current motivation, but the original motivation was purely as let me create more content so people can find the content and then go to the website and buy games. Yeah. Now, and I know it's been a bit of a 20 minutes here that we've done kind of the background of uh, leading up to this, but it was important, I think, for me to illustrate that because when you see someone in a year and a half 
is it 25,000 subscribers you had 25,000 subs. Yeah. I mean, congratulations. You just crossed that milestone. I saw that. I think it was about a week or so ago and uh, congrats on that. That is Thank a you. huge, huge achievement. Um, but I think people coming in could be misled and thinking, Oh, look, look that guy created 25,000 a year and a half. You know what? I mean, you know, I just have to look at his videos to see what he did. Maybe I can do something similar. And I think it's in, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this has a lot more to do with, your reputation you've built in the industry, right? The fact that you are tied in so well to Board Game Geek. I think having all that kind of pedigree leading into this channel has probably um, helped inform A, how you've approached the channel and the content creation, but B, and how that audience was built. Is that is that fair to say? Uh, to a degree. Like one the way, the way I would put it is I tell people I can definitely give advice uh, based on things that I think have worked for me over the past year and a half. Mm -hmm. I can definitely give guidelines of my trials, my errors, the things that I think worked and how people can approach content creation. But I don't think any one of those things or even the combination of all will guarantee success in the slightest. Yeah. I think it's going to be a combination of, of I mean, like, different aspects you touched upon. Like, so first of all, I did have an initial boost of I had an audience that when I then when I had my newsletter with, you know, 15,000 buyers and whatnot, I was able to, I was able to get my first 500 subs at least from just broadcasting to my customer base of saying, Hey, I'm doing YouTube, go ahead yeah. and sign up. And that initial boost does count. It's not 25,000, but it means I got like this leg up over a slow climb that people will often have to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but then past that, it's, I think I was very intertwined in the space. I've been in board games since 2012. I've been, I have a knowledge of board games that yeah. I think the knowledge is going to be the biggest background because oh, yeah. people really resonated to my channel when I started talking about the financial aspect of it, which wasn't the initial plan. But when I started touching upon, oh, the value of this game or back this game and then sell it later, that's what people resonated with. And I was able to talk about that stuff with confidence because day in, day out for the past nine years now, I've been dealing with used games and the prices of used games and selling and buying Kickstarters that people have sold. So I certainly have come in with a degree of knowledge of the board game space of how to manage a collection of how to rotate a collection of how to trade games, buy games, sell games that I don't think I would have had that knowledge had I just decided to start a channel, but I've been looking at the financial aspect of games for nine years now. It's not something you can just fake either. Right? Yeah. Yes, it's facts. Like I talk this all the time with when yeah. people do a review, a review is, I mean, it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of work that goes into a review, but yeah. at the end of the day, the worst thing you can be called out on is not having the same taste as someone else, but I'm trying to present factual information. When I sit there and I say, this game will hold its value. This game is a good back or not. Uh, guess what? A year later, people can come knocking on the door and say, Alex, you screwed up. That's a thing that can happen. I'm giving factual yeah. information or uh, it's not factual, it's still opinions, but it's, it's an opinion that is not based on this is my taste or not. It's a judgment call that if it doesn't come true at a certain point, people will and should start questioning whether my content is worth watching. If it's, if it's giving you the wrong advice, it's not worth watching. So it's more uh, so, data driven then. Is, yes, very yeah. much so. Now you crank out a ton of content. How do you find the time? So you've got what, three jobs, right? Three jobs, four kids yeah. and play 20, 30, 20, 25 games a week. Yeah. yeah. So you obviously don't sleep, but how do you no, find time to, to do all this content? Cause creating content is not, it's not like you just flick a camera on and bang all of a sudden you got your video nope. done. Like there's, there's filming, there's editing. So watching one of your videos, you're like, this is take two. We just finished a couple hours of filming. And guess what? Our camera wasn't on. So we're doing it again. Right. So like it takes an insane amount of time. So to have the amount of content you've created, I'm just trying to get my head around. How do you, you must have good time management for one, I would think, but how do you do it? 
So it's mostly going to be the time management and yeah. meaning the way I put it to people. And I've had this conversation with others who've asked like, how do you do this? Like, I can't like do a video a week, yeah. but if you actually map out your day, if you actually sit there and say, well, I have 24 hours in a day, where does it all go? Most people can't fill that 24 hours and they write it down. They sure. I sleep for seven, eight hours. Fine. And I sleep for like six and a half, but I sleep, let's say whatever it is. You sleep for seven hours. Fine. You, you, you know, you go to work for this many hours, yeah. you commute for this many hours. And yeah. then like, there's often this block of time that's like six to seven hours. And that's forgetting the weekend and having extra time there that people can't actually say what they're doing. Time just goes by. You sit there and you run a little errand and it manages to take up an hour and a half of your day. You go to hang a picture on the wall and somewhere between starting and finishing two yeah. hours of your day is gone. People manage to, use time in a way that it goes by and i don't do that i i i i have a very strict schedule from the moment i wake up to the moment i go to bed including playing games and having fun like movie night like all these everything i do from game night to movie night is all scheduled there's a point in my day at which it happens and i do my best to not ever just be sitting there on the couch with my phone scrolling through my facebook feed i try to avoid that because mm -hmm. that's where time just manages to disappear so, and also, by the way, I have no other hobbies except for board games at this point. I've cut out watching movies. <laughs> I've cut out playing video games. I've cut out everything else out because I have no time for anything else. Yeah. But if you sit there and you are always focusing your time and doing something with intent, as opposed to waiting for the time to go by, there's a surprising amount of time you can actually find in any given day. Oh, that's awesome. Those are uh, definitely some wise words. Um, now oh, it comes, it comes at a cost. I mean, there's a cost. Yeah. I've said this before. I remember, I remember one particular moment that really struck me. I was like, is it worth it? Where I was driving past someone on the launcher outside, just looking at the sky. And I was like, I could never do that. I couldn't just be on a launcher outside, just enjoying the weather because yeah. I mean, that's, it's nice. It's great. There's a value to that, but I'm always like, no, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm doing this. So there's a cost to what I'm doing just for all those who are like, wow, I should do that. I like it. I'm happy with my life, but there's a cost. Yeah. I guess it's just making choices, right? Yeah. Um, now there, the one other thing that uh, you're also involved in is uh, the quack a little podcast. Um, so how did that kind of come about? How did you kind of get connected with uh, Jan and Jesse? How, how did that all kind of materialize? Complete accident. Uh, in yeah. fact, speaking of second takes, meaning doing a video again, very much an accident. So way back, I want to say July, I think July, 2020, I did a video of like my top 10 favorite content creators. And it's just people I regularly watch. Dice Tower's yeah. on there, Rado's out there, uh, Board Game Coffee, a bunch of channels were on there. And I actually ended up refilming the video a few months later because I, I was in the middle of going through some camera upgrades and I was really unhappy with like the lighting and the situation. I was like, fine, I'm going to redo this one. I don't do, yeah. I don't redo a lot of videos, but I certainly do redo them. And the second time around, between the first take and the second take, it was like a month and a half, I started watching Quackalo and I really enjoyed his content. And yeah. so I bumped somebody else off the list and put Quackalo on the list <laughs> for my second take. But like it would never, it would, I always enjoy that story because it would never have happened had I just done the first video. But then I put out the video, Quackalo was my favorite top content creators. And then they reached out. They're like, hey, and I made a few connections through the video. It wasn't yeah. intent, but a few people reached out like, hey, so glad you like our stuff. And we, I started talking. I developed a relationship with Board Game Coffee. I developed a relationship with Quackalope. It was, it was just me talking about them and them reaching out and saying, hey, you know, thanks. Let's have a conversation. And we had a conversation and then we started a podcast and Jesse and I like to have fun going back and forth at each other in different videos and collaborations. Like I like collaborating with a lot of people, but I would say very much with Jesse, it has blossomed into like a very like real friendship that we enjoy each other's company. Like we'll spend time together and not film anything at this point. It's just, oh, it's, cool. just it's, it's fun. I like that. I like those guys. So uh, yeah, that's when the crackle podcast started. 
Now, in terms of proximity, is most of it now having to be remote or are you guys able to still kind of be in the same location at all or? The podcast is going to always be remote. Uh, I think after yeah. this video, we'll be uh, filming the podcast this week. We usually have two days, but he's yeah. busy tomorrow. But in terms of proximity, like he's roughly five hours away. So I would say on a once a month basis, roughly, either I make the time to visit him or he makes the time to visit me. We'll wow. often film a bunch of videos together. Not always, but yeah. That's dedication. That's awesome. It, it, the energy off that podcast, if there's anybody listening or watching, I would uh, encourage you to check out the Quackalow podcast. Uh, it is uh, just <laughs> high energy from beginning to end. <laughs> you almost we need like, a nap afterwards. <laughs> we like to we like to bicker and uh, attack each other, which is it's some it's funny. Some people don't love that because like they think it's a little bit too controversial, a little bit too confrontational. But it's it's part of the energy of just being always on the whole podcast. And it's having fun, right? It's just kind yep. of jabbing each other, and I, that's what buds do, right? So it's kind of cool to kind of listen to that from the from the sidelines. So what's kind of next on your plate? Obviously your, your plate is completely full. Um, you've got such a broad um, understanding of the board game industry and how games themselves are, are put together, the mechanics behind them, the, the themes and so yep. forth. Has there been any thought of getting into any kind of design yourself or launching any kind of game on Kickstarter or? Oh, I'd, I'd love to, but it has to wait till the next phase of my life. Uh, going back to that yeah. time management, I, I don't have time for anything else right now. Uh, I need to take things off my plate before I add other things. And and I do hope for content creation to be a full-time thing at some point. Going back to our earlier part of this conversation, yeah. I absolutely, over the next five, 10 years, I absolutely plan on taking a pay cut from what I currently make in order to be in this space because I, I like it too much and I'd love to be able to do this full-time. And if or when that happens, I mean, yeah, game design, absolutely. I've written like three sets of rules over the past, before even contribution, over the past 10 years, I've written uh, three or four sets of rules. I've never play tested them because that takes way too much work and time and energy. Mm -hmm. But between the connections I made and all that, I'd love to design a game one day. It's not it's not the be all and end all for me, not in the slightest, but it would be a nice thing to do if or when I actually have time for it. And that's a dream, right? Is uh, is taking something you're passionate about and, uh, and making a living off of it. I mean, if, if anybody can do that, that's, I think that's what the goal is for all of us, right? Absolutely. hundred percent. Alex, it's been amazing having you on this podcast. I really do appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy, so it was awesome to be able to line you up for this. And uh, I wish you all the best with your channel, with your buy, sell business, just with the whole board game co. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.